Right. We're back on air. A very warm welcome to episode six of Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. We are seeking out and celebrating the One Ashes Test Wonders. We've heard from the fast bowlers, the spinners and the opening batsmen. Now it's time to turn our attention to the beating heart of the team, crouching, hidden behind the stumps, ready to pounce and snaffle at a moment's notice. It's our Wicket Keepers special featuring Paul Gibb, Arthur McIntyre, Keith Andrew and the New South Wales legend Brian Tabor. Last time around on Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, we heard from our most capped One Ashes test wonder, Pat Pocock, and what a fantastic interview that was with some fascinating stories. Today's featured guest, Brian Tabor, played his One Ashes test in the same series as Pat in 1968, but he too was more than a mere flash in the pan, featuring 16 times in tests for Australia in total. And Brian was certainly glad to include a test against England in that number. I'm so wrapped that I did play a test in England. It was really a great tool to play and, and it also gave me the opportunity for my wife and I to come over there for the centenary test because I played a test there. And that was a wonderful event and catching up with all the English players as well. And the Poms did us so royally over there. <laughs> we had plenty of gin and tonics. We'll hear more from Brian soon. First of all, let's hear about these intrepid English wicketkeepers. But I must warn you, this is X-rated stuff. It's a calamitous, torturous affair for our three glovemen down under. And who better to serve as our tour guide than the cricket writer and historian Stephen Chalk? The first three tours of Australia after the war, in each case Godfrey Evans went as one of the two wicketkeepers, and the first test was played at Brisbane. Three of the England cricketers who only played once against Australia all played in the first test at Brisbane on those tours. The second wicketkeeper on the tour, Paul Gibb in 46-7, Arthur McIntyre in 50-51 and Keith Andrew in 54-55. Three more disastrous test matches for England are hard to imagine. Sounds intriguing. Let's start with Paul Gibb of Yorkshire, Cambridge University and Essex. He played eight tests in total for England and toured Australia in 1946-7. Many people thought England should not have gone to Australia that soon after the war because cricket had only just got going again. We didn't have young players and we weren't quite ready to start playing a test series against Australia again. But in the euphoria of the end of the war, we agreed to accept the invitation and went out. But inevitably, we went out with quite an old team. There were men over the age of 40. And worse, they'd all been living under rationing in England for months. And when they got to Australia, where there was no rationing, one player said on one occasion that the meal was more than he had in a week in England. Not long into the tour, the waistlines were starting to expand. This was not good for the cricket. They got to Brisbane, the first test match. At this stage, Paul Gibb was the first choice wicketkeeper. An interesting character, he'd been to St Edward's Oxford, a public school, and to Cambridge University and played as an amateur for Yorkshire. And he played some tests before the war, including a century against South Africa in the timeless test. 
And he was going as the number one wicketkeeper with the young Godfrey Evans as his deputy. He wasn't that good a wicketkeeper. I don't think anybody would pretend that. But he offered a bit in the batting, which at that stage, having had Les Ames as the England wicketkeeper before the war, they still liked the idea of a, a wicketkeeper who offered quite a lot with the bat. So he was preferred to Godfrey Evans at Brisbane. And Brisbane, the first test of the series, played right up in Queensland in tropical conditions. Australia batted first. And on the Saturday evening, at the end of the second day, they'd reached 595 for five with a fairly poor England fielding performance, with Paul Gibb not distinguishing himself greatly behind the stumps. And then the weather broke. There was rain on Monday and further rain on Tuesday, a tropical rainstorm with hail falling the size of golf balls. By the time England resumed their first innings, the pitch was a, an absolute sticky. We were bowled out for 141 and 172, 15 wickets falling in a day, with Paul Gibbs scoring 13 and 11. Comment was made about his wicket-keeping not being great, and in came Godfrey Evans for the second test match. And Paul Gibb never played another test. Godfrey Evans kept wicket for over a thousand runs scored by Australia before he conceded his first bye, made an immediate good impression. He was the youngest member of the tour party at the age of 26. And Paul Gibb retired from cricket at the end of the tour. The coda to that is that he came back as a professional playing, keeping wicket and playing for Essex for six years in the 1950s. First ever university blue to turn professional, which in those days was very unacceptable in certain circles. And he was asked to resign his MCC membership and played six years with Essex and then became an umpire for 10 years, traveled round in a caravan, then disappeared off the scene. And when he died 11 years later, He'd become a bus driver in Guildford. Somebody took, went to his funeral and heard at the funeral that at a young age he'd been diagnosed with a serious heart problem and told to take no energetic exercise of any sort. Right. And yet he spent his life playing cricket and squash yeah. lived to the age of 64. So Australia was not exactly a field of dreams for poor old Paul Gibb. Things would surely get better in 5051 for Arthur McIntyre of Surrey. England went to Australia with their third choice captain, as both Norman Yardley and George Mann had said that they weren't available, that they had to work through the winter. So Freddie Brown was appointed as the captain. He himself was 40 during that winter, but he took stock and decided that he wanted to go with a young team. He would win the Ashes with youngsters. That was the way to win in Australia. So he went out with a whole lot of players who were very inexperienced, including several of the batsmen, Brian Close, David Shepherd, Gilbert Parkhouse, John Dews, leaving behind Bill Edrich, Jack Robertson, Gimblet, Brooks, Hardstaff, a whole lot of experienced cricketers. This is the first tour after Bradman's retirement. And there's a feeling that perhaps Australia aren't quite now quite as strong. Alas, none of those young batsmen came good. And when it got to select the team for the first test at Brisbane, they took the 
rather bizarre decision to pick Arthur McIntyre, the reserve wicketkeeper, as a specialist batsman. Arthur Mack was penciled into the team at number six. His highest first-class score on the tour at that stage was 32 not out. Brisbane, they lost the toss. Australia batted. Godfrey Evans is keeping wicket. Arthur Mack is playing as a specialist batsman in the field. The game takes an unexpected turn on the first day because England, who've shown no form up to that stage, bowled Australia out for 228. Then the storms broke. No play on Saturday. <laughs> the pitch started to dry out Sunday. Then more torrential rain. And by the time they started an hour late on the Monday, the pitch was sticky, very sticky. And the followed the most extraordinary day's play in the whole history of Ashes cricket. England got to lunch 28 for no wicket. But... Within the hour, they were 68 for seven, with the ball flying or shooting, the bounce very uneven. Knowing how difficult it was, Freddie Brown declared and put Australia back in. Australia batted for an hour, in which they lost wickets rapidly and were 32 for seven, when they in turn declared in order to get England back in, while before the pitch dried out. Further complication was that Freddie Brown summoned up the heavy roller. He reckoned that for the last hour, hour and a half, when they had to bat, if he could put the heavy roller over it, they might be able to get through without too much damage. But at that time, for the last time in an Ashes test, the Brisbane heavy roller was horse-drawn, and there was only a 10-minute break between the innings, and it took a fair bit of the 10 minutes to get the horse tethered up to the roller and the rolling was not very substantial. So they went out to bat on a pitch that was still extremely difficult. The object of the exercise was to survive. Simpson was out first ball and then they dug in and, and things were going a little better. But Brown decided to keep Hutton and Compton back for the next day and was sending in other batsmen just to play out time on this difficult wicket. They only had 190-odd to win, knowing that if they could get through to the morrow and they had wickets in hand with Hutton and Compton to bat, they had a pretty good chance of winning the game. So here we are. We've had a day. 68 for seven declared, 32 for seven declared, England back in. With the light fading fast, there was probably the worst quarter of an hour in the whole history of England-Australia Ashes tests, as far as England was concerned. Wickets started to fall, and bad wickets. Beds are spooned a catch. Bailey hooked a long hop straight down the throat of square leg. And Arthur McIntyre, playing in an Ashes test for the first time, went out to bat at number seven, just a few minutes before stumps, at 23 for five. He hit a four off the leg-breaking googly bowler, Jack Iverson. And then... He paddled round round to leg that ran towards the boundary. And he and Godfrey Evans ran three. But the throw started to come in, and it wasn't a good throw. And Arthur Mack decided to come back for a fourth. And this is how he described it to me. I hit Iverson down to square leg, a fair way. A chap named Johnson chased it. We'd run three easy runs. 
and we went for the fourth. This chap threw the ball in. It missed the stumps by quite a bit. Don Tallon, their keeper, backed away from the wicket, took the ball, threw it at the stumps, and it hit them. And I was out, run out, going for a fourth. Christ, if I could have walked off the ground the other way and not had to face Freddie Brown, I would have done. Arthur Mack was a, a little chap, and he scuttled up and down the wicket. And at Surrey, where he played, his running between the wickets was a, not universally popular in the team. There was a chap called Jack Parker, who was built rather like a great ship, who would struggle to run and turn and run back. He was forever getting into run-out situations with Arthur Mack and got very frustrated running with him. Now, Jack Parker was at home in South London on the morning when Arthur Mack was playing for England at Brisbane and he got up out of bed early, came downstairs into the front room and turned on the radio to see how it was going, sitting on his own in the front room. When the run-out occurred, he let out a long and loud series of expletives, effing bling and this went on, <laughs> shouting away in his armchair downstairs in the front room. And unknown to him, his young daughter had crept down the stairs and was sitting on the staircase just outside the room, heard all this, went back up to her mother and said, what does daddy mean by this and be that? And, and uh, the atmosphere in the house was very frosty for several days afterwards. That Brisbane test of 1950 must surely rank as one of the most incredible of all time. And from an English wicket-keeping perspective, things are going from bad to worse. Well, we roll on another four years to another Brisbane test, 1954-55. Len Hutton, now the England captain, what turned out to be a wonderful series for England, but not a wonderful game at Brisbane. He took the extraordinary decision, having won the toss, to put Australia into bat. And they made over 600. The fielding performance was fairly catastrophic. It was thought that about 12 chances were missed. Dennis Compton, fielding on a ball on the boundary, damaged his hand and was um, injured. Godfrey Evans had heat stroke and was unable to play in the game at the last minute. So Keith Andrew, the young reserve wicketkeeper, suddenly found on the morning of the game that he was pitched into this test match. As the reserve wicketkeeper, he hadn't done an awful lot of keeping on the tour up to that point. And he'd only played one summer of county cricket. He'd never kept wicket for more than six hours in an innings in his life. But there he was for, for more than two days, keeping wicket in this Brisbane heat. And my God, it was hot that game. In the third over of the match, he had to stand up to Alec Bedser. And Alec Bedser was a lively, fast, medium bowler who cut the ball. He had this leg cutter and he wasn't easy to stand up to. Arthur Mack was a wonderful keeper to Alec Bedser, but Keith had only kept to him about once so far on the tour. And in the third over of the match, Arthur Morris, a left-hander, had got an inside edge onto a ball, which had gone down to Keith's right, and he hadn't caught it. And Keith, who was an outstanding wicketkeeper, he looked back on it in later life and said, it, was, it wasn't really a catch that a keeper could get. That kind of deflection when you're standing up to the stumps is very difficult to take. 
but very quickly he became the fall guy of the whole game they said oh if he would caught morris when he was naught it would have set the standard for the day godfrey would have caught it morris went on and scored 153 and by the second day keith was really struggling it was very hot he said to me the sweat was pouring from my brow i could taste the salt in it and i remember walking down the pitch from the pavilion end and noticing a sign over the top of the sight screen atlantic it said in huge red letters it was a brand of petrol i think and I started to think of the Atlantic Ocean and the beaches in Cornwall, where we'd been going to have our honeymoon. My concentration was in tatters. I think I'd <laughs> got a touch of the sun. The sadness of it is, was that I talked to many cricketers of the 1950s, and when you asked them who were the best keepers, the two names that came up repeatedly were Arthur McIntyre and Keith Andrew. They were the outstanding keepers on the county circuit. Godfrey was a showman. He turned it on for the big occasions, but day in, day out in county cricket, he didn't do it. He was one of those exhibitionist keepers throwing himself around. Keith played one further test match more than eight years later. He was labelled as not having big match temperament, and he was so young at the time. Yeah. And that it was all down to this catch he was supposed to have caught off Arthur Morris, which he never felt he, he had a chance of catching. Many years later, at the 1980 centenary test at Lords, Arthur Morris had come over and Keith found himself sitting next to Arthur Morris on a coach. And they got to talking about the game at Brisbane. And Keith brought up the catch and Arthur said to him, I nicked one before that and you didn't appeal. And Keith remembered a ball where something had happened, it had gone through and he thought there was something funny about it. How history could have been different if he um, held that catch and Morris yeah. had been out for a duck. Those are the fine lines. People play one Ashes test rather than 50. And that is the story of our one Ashes test wonders in microcosm. The cruel twists of fate that dictate success and failure. The if-onlys and the what-might-have-beens. It's time to move on. We've heard enough of English wicketkeepers struggling down under. Let's turn the tables and meet an Australian keeper on tour in England. Brian Tabor was born in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales in 1940. He played for his state for 10 years from 1964 to 1974, winning the Sheffield Shield in his first two seasons. He played 16 tests for Australia between 1966 and 1970. His one Ashes test came on the 1968 Tour of England. Brian, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thanks very much, Brian. Uh, pleasure to join you. Yeah, really good to speak to you. Thanks for giving the time up. How did you get into cricket when you were a young man? I was born in New South Wales country, which is renowned New South Wales for being very good with uh, all sport. I went to school in Wollongong, which is uh, an hour south of Sydney. And I did, my father played a lot of sport and he was keen for my brother and I to play sport. I loved playing my cricket. I was only about eight or nine when I made the, the local team to come to Sydney to play the few games and all of a sudden I, I liked the wicket keeping and batting and I enjoyed that so I was, I was one of the many country boys in New South Wales that eventually finished up playing for New South Wales. What drew you to wicket keeping? Uh, the wicket keeping side 
often the youngsters at 9, 10, 11 aren't interested all that much in keeping. We were battling to have a keeper at one stage and my dad, who was the manager, and said, well, listen, you better take the gloves and have a keep because nobody else wants to do it. Further it went, the more I enjoyed wicketkeeping. You're in the game all the time. And but it's quite a specific art, isn't it, wicketkeeping? Who taught you in your formative years? My dad helped me with the basic skills. And then as I went along, you know, I remember uh, a few years later meeting Bert Oldfield, who was one of the invincibles, who was Don Bradman's team. He was the keeper and, uh, and he was meticulous with his presentation and with his workload and so on. Then I had a few other people help me along the way. You played for Gordon Cricket Club in New South Wales. What kind of age would you have been when you made your debut for them? Just 16. We were still in Wollongong at that stage, out of Sydney, and Dad used to drive us up, my brother and I, uh, each weekend to play for Gordon. And we, uh, it was a long haul. The roads weren't as good in those days. The Gordon Club were terrific in those days. And some good senior players, one particular guy, Sid Carroll, played a lot of Sheffield Shield cricket and was very unlucky not to go to England, apparently, about 56. But anyhow, I had some tremendous help from those guys and I just loved my 20-odd years with Gordon. Whenever uh, we came back from a tour or games, I'd always look forward to playing, which I've always recommended to young players. Mm. Whenever you come back home, make sure you don't forget who's put you there. And it, Gordon has a strong history of producing test players, doesn't it? You, you mentioned Bert Oldfield and obviously yourself, but Victor Trumper, Neil Harvey and more latterly Adam Gilchrist as well. Yes, yes, Adam had a year or two and, yeah, and he yeah. played with my son Stephen and uh, in oh, representative right. cricket. And from there you progressed to New South Wales. How did the opportunity come about with them? As you know, wicketkeeping, there's only one spot. <laughs> and uh, when, when that spot comes up, Remember Wally Grout, uh, he said, never give a sucker an even break. <laughs> so if you've got a broken, a broken leg or a broken arm, don't say you, you, you're crook. I had to wait for a few years mm. playing second 11 cricket and Colts cricket to uh, Doug Ford, who was, who was the weed keeper for Richie Benno and Alan Davidson in those years. Because mm. I, ca- I came in one year after Richie and Alan retired. Uh, those guys I know. And they've been great friends over the years. So it's just a, a case of keeping working hard and hoping that when the opportunity arrives, you're in good form and, and get the nod. And you were immediately involved in a winning side at New South Wales, weren't you? Because you won the Sheffield Shield in your first two seasons. Is that right? That's right, yeah. You yeah. had a great impact on the team, didn't you? Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> it was very nearly the test side at one stage, New yeah. South Wales. Uh, we were very fortunate to have such a strong side, which meant that you're coming behind a lot of good players. Had some tremendous help and guys to, you know, watch what they do and copy them and this sort of thing on and off the field. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were at a function and we saw Ken Archer, the oldest living test cricketer at the moment, Neil Harvey as well, and he, he's only just behind him. But uh, there were some wonderful people here. As you know, you meet some wonderful people in cricket. Before we get on to Australia, what were the highlights of your playing career with New South Wales? There was one game in Adelaide. I had a good run. I got about 12 wickets, nine catches and three stumps in a match. 
And a run out uh, as well, wasn't there? I think they might have been as well. <laughs> you can take and the credit for that as well. <laughs> it, good on you. And I hit, I'm at now at lunch on the last day of the game and uh, they had done a pretty slick job and had a ball mounted on a little stand and Sir Donald Bradman presented to me at lunchtime. Oh, wow. So that was very nice. That's pretty special. And that's also one of my favourite grounds, Adelaide. Do wicketkeepers think about stats in the same way as batsmen and bowlers? I mean, I guess it's difficult. It depends if the chances come your way. That's exactly right. Sometimes you can have in your own mind that you've had, you know, gee, I kept well today and I really Mm. am. And you've probably got one catch or something. Then another day, like the day they've got this record, I got 12 wickets. Well, I mean, halfway through, I wasn't thinking of anything. You know, it's nice. We've quite a few nicks coming straight through. Well, I mean, everybody should get them, uh, any keeper. I don't think you think of that through. You'd be just putting too much pressure on yourself. You love to have a good day. You you love to help your mates and, and take their wickets for them. Let's move on to your Australia career. And as you say, it's very difficult because there's only one space in the team for a wicketkeeper. But a place did open up for you after the 65-66 season, didn't it? I did play in the next series, which is after 65 when Wally retired. And that was to South Africa. Goes a bit up and down for the keepers for the next few years because Barry Jarman, who had been the 2IC to Wally Grout for 10 years, when Wally retired, the next trip to South Africa, he was unavailable for family and business reasons, and that gave me my opportunity. So I went to South Africa in 66-7. Gordon Becker from Western Australia was the other keeper. I got the first test match in South Africa and then kept in the five tests. And I think I got eight dismissals in the first test. You know, that was a great start. You did indeed. It, uh, I was just looking at that. Seven catches and a stump in. South Africa won. But yeah, you had an excellent debut, didn't you? We let him off the hook there. And yeah. Dennis Lindsay, keeper batsman for South Africa, had a great series. And there was some some very dodgy uh, umpiring dismissals in that, in that year. But anyhow, that's by the, by the by. What were the main uh, bad decisions? Well, Peter Von Amur in the first test was, he, he was on naught. And Dennis Lindsay was on 10. And we got him caught behind in front of first slip, given not out. Dennis went on and slogged away, and uh, uh, he got 180. We dropped a few chances too. Mm-hmm. I put one down, but all in all, it was it was very disappointing. But after that South African tour, then we came back, and for our domestic season the following year, Barry Jarman took back the spot as number one. Was that disappointing for you? Because you played all the matches in South Africa. Did you expect yeah. to play against India? I didn't expect it, really, because I heard that Barry had sorted things out and he was going to be available. And I thought, well, he probably will take it back over, which he did. So he had the domestic series here. And then we went to England and I went as deputy. Barry did a finger in the second test at Lords. That's where I got the uh, job to keep at Edgebaston in, in the third test. OK, let's look at 1968 in a little more detail. Were you always confident of being selected for that tour? No, I think I was fairly confident that I'd be one of the two keepers. I was looking at the England team a little earlier that we played against at Edgebaston. There was some test match, you know, between 
between them all with Edridge boycott. Yeah. And that is Barry Knight we played against. And Barry's been a very good friend here in Australia for many years. He, he's been here forever and uh, done quite a bit of coaching and so on with Barry over the years since then, along with Dougie Walters. Colin Cowdery, and from memory, he got 100 in the first innings. Mm. And I think it might have been his 100th test match. And Kenny Barrington the end, at the end of his career. Alan Knott and Ray Ellingworth, Brownie, Snowy, and Derek Underwood. So it was a, a pretty useful lineup. Did you mix with those players off the field once the matches were over? And did you get on with them? Not a lot, but we did, we did a bit. To us, when in our Shield days with New South Wales and the four-day games and so on, at the end of each day, you'd find the team that was batting would come to the fielding team's dressing room with a couple of bottles under their arm to have a beer and chat about the day. And I think that's a big part of the game. Over the years, I think a lot of that has gone. And it's amazing how things, particularly on tour, by keeping that camaraderie with the teams, the number of invitations that are out for barbecues or a rest day, game of golf, and that's a very important part of the game. And it's amazing how much you can learn from each other. And how about the match itself? What are your memories of that third test at Edgebaston? In the first innings, I, I, <laughs> I remember getting a pretty fair catch down the league side off Eric Freeman. It was, it was John Edridge and, uh, and John got 88. And you were always happy to see the back of John yeah. because he was a very good player. When I picked that up, I thought, you, you know, because you, want to, you just want to feel that you're pulling your weight. It was a good catch, so I, I was happy. And then you got boycott, didn't you, in the in the second innings? Do you remember that? Yeah, it's always good when you get boys. <laughs> <laughs> Why does <Yeah>. everybody say that? <laughs> <laughs> what do you remember about that dismissal? Very enjoyable. <laughs> but I, this was about the stage when Boyks was saying to one of the guys, uh, "Oh, I know I had a Johnny Gleeson. I've got him. I've worked him out how he spins, but don't tell anybody else." Yeah. <laughs> Good team, man, boys. Yeah. And then it turned out as a draw, didn't it, that match in the end? It was a draw, yeah. 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 Then the fourth mm. test obviously came around. Did you think, look, I might hold on to my place here or was was it always going to be Barry back for that one? Always Barry back. Mm. If his finger was okay, yeah. you, you never give too much leeway to the next boat. But he was I, captain I, I for that fourth him. test as well, wasn't he, I saw? He, he was as well because Bill Laurie, that's right, he was injured. And what was it like to be a wicketkeeper in that era? Did you feel under pressure to score runs in the tour matches or was it more about your ability behind the stumps? The pressure started to come. That, well, Barry Garman was a pretty handy batsman at times. From then on, it, it was started to turn a little bit that it was becoming, with a one-day cricket, it was more important then for the keeper to be able to, uh, to bat and get a few runs. The adage always was, Pick your best keeper. Get a keeper that's going to miss a stumping or miss a catch and he's got to get a 50 or 100 before he starts to make up for it. How would you compare your wicketkeeping to Barry Jarman? I always enjoyed keeping on the stumps. In New South Wales, I was lucky because we always had quite a few spinners. I put the standing back with the fast bowlers. Well, you've just got to be on your medal and just watch very closely. But on the stumps, you've got to know your bowlers and... I remember in South Africa going to the nets after practice, having an extra half an hour or so, keeping the Ashley Mallet. And Ian Chappell would join us. He'd just grab a stump and bat. 
uh, missing a few here and there to put the pressure on me, he played for South Australia. And I, I didn't keep doing normal. That would help me get to know. He'd say, oh, look, I'll bowl an over of this. Then I'll bowl an over that. And then he said, I'll, I'll mix them up. And this was great for me. Well, it's in his interest too, that I can pick him so that I can get him some wickets. So I don't like to compare myself with anybody else. I was very comfortable against the spinners and I enjoyed keeping the spinners. Who were the hardest players to keep to then, would you say? Johnny Martin from New South Wales, who's a left-arm yeah. Chinaman, as they call him. He at times was good because he, he ripped them between bat and pad, big off-spinner. He could be very awkward to keep to. But I, I loved the spinners and I loved Johnny Gleeson. My first game with John was in a Shield match. I hadn't seen him play before. We batted in the first innings. Once the game was underway for a while and we were batting all right, I said to Johnny, we go out into the, into the practice nets, spend half an hour with me, just showing me your different deliveries. That made it a lot easier. After a couple of games, I could pick what Johnny was bowling when he was a couple of yards from the delivery strike. Because of the little idiosyncrasies and the way he held the ball and so on, that makes it a lot easier. I saw little things that just trigger you as he was coming in the bowl. Little messages he's not giving intentionally. Little messages that say, that's the wrong one, yeah. that's the toppy, that's the leggy song. Did you feel it was your responsibility as the wicketkeeper to keep everyone G'd up and making sure that everybody was fully concentrated at all times? Not, not verbally. Uh, you see some of them now, they, they just get carried away a bit with too much yeah. <laughs> uh, verbal support. I think just a sensible part of encouragement and so on is good. Going over the top on that, you finish up driving your, your mates mad. And the umpires will say, what the, what the hell is this? <laughs> I think there are different ways to keep a can encouraged. Pats on the back between overs, a few words here and there. And yeah. as far as getting into the gamesmanship as far as having a go at the batsman and this sort of thing. I was never interested in that. Was there much sledging on the pitch during that era, on that 1968 tour, for example? I think there's always a bit, but with this sledging, how you interpret that, I don't know. But we used to play it hard. The gamesmanship bit, Ian Chappell walked past me and say, geez, that pitch is looking a bit rough over there, Taddy, so that the batsman could hear it, and that sort of thing. But nothing uh, toward, oh, you jammy buggy, you uh, French cut. The batsman might French cut yeah. a, a ball down the fine leg or something. Oh, you jammy bugger. Oh, the fast bowlers generally look after that side of it. So you're not a fan of mental disintegration? Not really. You know, I mean, you're not worth your squirt if, you, if you're if you going to let those sort of things worry you. No. I don't think you should be out there. I yeah. remember, uh, if I can jump back, in the Gordon days, and Sid Carroll, who was at the end of his career when I play, when I started, but he'd say, hey, listen, uh, tell your dad I'll take you back after the game tonight. And, but he said, you just sit in the corner and just listen. Every team we play in the first grade, you've got a few senior players. And you find that in that social scene after the game, it's amazing the, the, the things you can pick up about players or by players. You just put that in the memory bank. You know, you learn so much. Would you seek out the opposition wicketkeeper specifically and have a chat with him? I'd have a beer with him, but I wouldn't be worried about talking about techniques or this sort of thing. I just did my own thing. 
Because Alan Knott was the wicket keeper, I think, in 68, wasn't he? Did you think he yeah. was a good wicket keeper? Very good. At one year over the I when he kept uh, Derek Underwood, he, he was brilliant. And I noticed one drill. It was up at Old Trafford, I think it was. He put a couple of stumps in the ground. One stump would be on about good length, and the other one was the bowling crease. And he'd get Derek to bowl two or three overs to him. He would stand on the the one on good length mm. where the ball would actually pitch two or three yards in front of the crease. And he would go down in the crouch. He wouldn't move. It was good for Derek too, for his accuracy. He would just bowl them straight into Derek's arms on, on the half volley right. on that spot. And I thought, what a good drill. And, and you pick things up like that. There are always ways of improving. And at the same time, you're helping your bowler as well. Not even, and he was good off Snowy. Snowy was really sharp that year too. And he took some great catches off Snowy. We've spoken a little bit about your batting. Do you remember batting in that Ashes test? You made 16 in the first innings. I think I might, might have put uh, Illy through the covers for four. I enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah. Still kicking myself and not working harder at it. But that's the way it goes. Just yeah. after that Ashes series, 68, Obviously, then you mentioned earlier that was the, the West Indies tour where Barry was back in the team. But one thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, we mentioned Wally Grat. He died of a sudden heart attack, didn't he, just before that series? Was that a big shock to you? Because he was very young, wasn't he? It was because I had seen, uh, we were playing a Shield game in Brisbane a week before and uh, Wally had come into the dressing room. He'd retired and just to have a drink with us and so on. Then we went up at the Gabba. We went upstairs next door to the cricketers club and we have dinner with Wally. He was working for Rockman's in those days. He'd just been down in Tasmania. So he called in to see us at the end of the game. He was staying the night and then going home up to Bundaberg, a bit up north later. We came home, three days later, he passed away. And he was only about 42, 43, I forget now, but we got a hell of a surprise. He was a good man. Just to go back to the, the five tests then in India and the four in South Africa when you had that really good run of tests. How did that mm-hmm. feel to be established in the side then? Was that, you know, I am the Australian wicketkeeper now? No, oh, it was a good feeling. Uh, yeah. I really enjoyed that. I had the two tours to South Africa. The first trip, my first tour when Barry Jarman wasn't available, I played the five tests in South Africa. Then we went to, in 69-70, we did the five tests and the four against South Africa. And, and that, you know, that, that was a really good feel. Mm. That, you know, playing nine tests, you know you're there. I felt my, my spot was uh, safe. The South Africa tour, there was a bit of controversy about that tour, wasn't it? It was actually the last test they played for more than 20 years because of apartheid. Did yes, that yeah. uh, get through to any of the players? Did you feel comfortable going on that tour? Or was, was there a bit of unease about any of the players about going? No, there was we had no thoughts about apartheid at all. And mm. oh, well, we, when I say that, we didn't agree with that. But but mm. we we were just there to play cricket, and and I I'd been, I went back later to to there and with the Rothman Sport Foundation. Mm. I went back over there doing some coaching for a while, and we we did a lot. They're lovely countries. Okay, so just wrapping up your Australia career, as you said, you bookended it with the two South Africa tours. Did you feel after that last tour that it was going to be the end? Or did you feel you had more test cricket in you? Yeah, I, I thought I had more. I was disappointed when I was given the nod for Rodney. That was the start of the 
the wicketkeeper batsman yeah. as far as I was concerned. With the records that he put up, probably a good decision. And then you mentioned the 1972 tour of England. How did that compare to 1968? It was pretty similar because I, I was the second keeper on both tours because Barry Jarman had come back as the main keeper and that's when I played the test when he broke a finger. Mm. And then uh, in 72, I was uh, deputy to, uh, to Rod. You know, I just roll with that because I just loved the game and I, I just wanted to be, a. if I wasn't playing, I just wanted to be a good team man in there. I remember up at Knott's, Ross Edwards said to me, hey, Tabsy, would you practice finish? He said, I'm not happy with that, my left foot, front foot drive and so on. I said, sure, let's get a bucket of balls. And anyhow, I threw him a bucket of balls. We had a chat, another bucket of balls. I think he got about 180 in the test. It was quite incredible, but it just shows what, whether it's in the mind, whether he's, he's just sorted something out and he finished that practice thinking, geez, that, that was good. That, that felt good and I feel like runs tomorrow. So I, I was quite happy to do that extra work to help where I can. I guess with the thing with those long tours back in the day as well, though, there were lots of tour games, weren't there? So it wasn't as if you yeah. weren't playing cricket. You got a lot of opportunities no. to play cricket as well. Yeah, that is dead right. And I think that's it's a tragedy uh, for cricket in all countries, really, uh, England and here, that they don't play the States a couple of times. They don't play New South Wales country down at Wagga or Burke or wherever. And when we, we toured England, we played every county, combined universities, even going up to have a game in Perth, Scotland, and the, the first tour in 68, we played in Dublin and Belfast, a couple of one-dayers, which is good, you know, to spread the game and so on. And, and the people love, love their game. When did you actually retire from cricket? And was that a difficult decision? It was 74 I retired. I played one more Shield season after we came back from England in 72, 73-4 season I played and I gave it away at the end of that because I accepted the job as the uh, National Director of Coaching for the Australian Cricket Board, sponsored by the Rothmans Sports Foundation. Well, that was great, wasn't it, that it came so soon and, you know, there wasn't a break. Obviously, you weren't playing, but I guess that's the next best thing, isn't it? And the best um, part of that, really, or the most satisfying part of that, was a selector and manager of the Australian under-17 and under-19 teams for about 20 years. I took a team to the West Indies, which included Shane Warne and Damien Martin, and all the boys in it played for uh, their states within the next year or two. What was Shane Warne like on that tour? Could you see his potential? There was one game at St Kitts. I thought, gee, this kid's got something. But never in my wildest dreams did I think that it would happen so quickly because I was told at the start of the tour by the CEO OCB that if this Warren plays up send him home because I thought shit you know what's he done <laughs> obviously there was no worry and, and he was the player of the series from on and off the field voted on by our whole team but he had a great tour and he's a good team man he then developed an incredible career and as I said it happened so quickly and he was so versatile with the ball and had so much control and yeah. and such a good cricket brain 
which is expanding and letting us know all about these days. Yes. They say he's the best cricket captain Australia never had. Would you agree with that? I'd agree with that. He just had an inbuilt character to know how to express himself to other players and to his own game. He just did it so well. He was great for the game. How would you feel about keeping to Warren? Do you think he could do that? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to have kept him. The Hills kept very well to him on India on one occasion. On some of those Indian wickets, he would have been pretty awkward. I still would have loved the challenge. Well, just to finish up here, we've just spoken about one Ashes legend in Shane Warne. What did playing in the Ashes mean to you? Every test something, but I'm, I'm so wrapped that I did play a test in England. It was really a great thrill to play, and, and it also gave me the opportunity for my wife and I to come over there for the centenary test because I'd played the uh, test there, and that was a wonderful event and catching up with all the English players as well. And the Poms did us uh, royally over there. <laughs> we had plenty of gin and tonics. I remember Mick Jagger liked them because I remember uh, Mick was at Lord sitting down the front, uh, knowing Mick was keen on the cricket. It got him to come up into the dressing room and meet the boys and relax and have another uh, pint and watch the game from the dressing room. Nice. Which was great. <laughs> Yeah. It was good. It was great. And that's where we're going to have to leave it for today, having a gas, gas, gas in the Australian dressing room with Mick Jagger at the centenary test at Lord's in 1980. And somewhere else at the famous old ground that day, Arthur Morris was catching up with Keith Andrew and telling him about the one he secretly edged to him in Brisbane in 1954. The home of cricket must have been a buzz with Ash's memories. A big thank you to Brian Tabor for sharing his Ashes memories and taking us through his stellar career, and to Stephen Chalk for his wonderful insights into our three hapless keepers down under. As always, do visit the website onceuponatimeintheashes.com for some great images of our one Ashes test wonders and lots of bonus material. Next time, our guest will be Roger Pridow, who played in the fourth test of that 1968 series. I strongly recommend you tune in. Until then... I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. <laughs>